This is part nine. <laughs> this is part nine of a series we started about 17 years ago called um, What is Love? And we have been taking the book, uh, or actually just this really short little passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, where Paul gives us an incredible application of what love is and is not and what it does and does not do. And we've been trying to break it down word for word. We skipped last week. We're going to jump back in this week. And then next week will be the last week. Thank you, God. We'll be done with that and move on. Talk about resurrection and resurrection people. But we started this series, if you don't mind. Um, I think, April, you're on computer back there. Would you throw up the very first slide, please? This is how we started this series nine weeks ago, by saying that love is the most powerful, relentless, tenacious, active force in the universe. Love is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is not an accident. It's not something you fall into. Love is not cheap. It is not easy. It is not weak. It is not small. It is not insignificant. Love does not belong to Hollywood or to Madison Avenue. It is bigger than you could possibly imagine or even understand. Because God is the most powerful, relentless, tenacious, active force in the universe. And God describes himself as love. God is love. We're talking about this Greek word agape, love, which is sacrificial. It is unconditional. It is no strings attached. It is a kind of love where the person who is loving would do anything for the person that he loves. This is the kind of love that God has for you, and this is the kind of love that Jesus commanded his followers to have for each other. On the night before our Savior was killed, he told his followers this. Our friend John recorded it for us. He said, Dear children, he's talking to his followers, I will be with you only a little longer And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love each other. Agape each other. Sacrificially, unconditionally love each other. Love each other in a way that you are willing to do anything for the person that you are loving and expect nothing in return. Just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my followers, that you're my disciples. About 20 years after Jesus said that, one of his followers named Paul, he sat down to write a letter to a church in a place called Corinth. And Paul makes the case, and I think rather convincingly, that love is the most important thing in all of existence. Here's the case that he makes, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and even of angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and even possessed all knowledge, if I had such a faith that I could move mountains, but did not love others, I would be nothing. 
If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And then Paul gives us the application of love, the difficult part of love, the messy, hard-to-understand, harder-to-do love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Vera, Nadia, and Luba. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. And don't you know that little girl named Love holds that over those other two girls? Because you would. The greatest is me. I'm the greatest. The greatest of those three things that will last forever is love. And so for eight and a half weeks, we have looked at these applications. What do these things mean? And today we're going to focus on the one. Love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. The phrase that Paul uses here is in Greek, and it is an accounting term. You're welcome, Pam. Finally something you, you, you know so much more about it. When we sit in a meeting together and Pam is there, I just feel so, well, dumb. <laughs> if you can do maths and accounting, you have a whole different level of existence that I will never understand. And so I feel uh, blessed to know some of you who are very, very much smarter than I am. But Paul is using an accounting term, and it literally means, when, when he says love does not keep a record of wrongs, it literally means love does not charge wrongdoing to the account of the wrongdoer. Love does not charge wrongdoing to the account of the wrongdoer. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that depressing? <laughs> Isn't that really difficult when you think about that? Here's what Paul is not saying. Let's, let's, let's talk about what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that love ignores wrongdoing. Paul is not saying that love turns a blind eye to wrongdoing. Paul is not saying that love won't hold wrongdoing and wrongdoers accountable. That's not what he's saying. 
Paul is not saying that love overlooks or just skips over wrongdoing. Paul is not saying that love minimizes the consequence or the consequences of wrongdoing. And Paul is not saying that love even forgets wrongdoing. What he's saying is that real love acknowledges wrongdoing, looks it in the eye, processes it, deals with it correctly, biblically, and then refuses, love refuses to use that wrongdoing against the wrongdoer in a personal relationship based on love. In other words, love refuses to weaponize the past. Love does not use the past or past failures or past mistakes like a hammer to beat the person who made the mistakes and did the wrongdoing over the head over and over and over. It keeps no record of what's happened, not ignores it, not denies it, not lives in denial, but just refuses to use it against the person, the object of love. In other words, this is my favorite translation of this verse, love does not keep score. Love doesn't keep score. Because when you keep score, you lose. We keep score because there has to be a winner and a loser, right? Unless you're in some sort of you know, child league where I guess we don't keep score anymore. Love to have a conversation with you about that. This is not the time or place. However, in a relationship, you cannot view a relationship like there always must be a winner and a loser, therefore I must keep score. That's not the way relationships work. And if you're a scorekeeper in your relationships with your family, your spouse, your friends, if you're the scorekeeper, you're losing. Scorekeeper language, two words, always and never. You'll know when you're keeping score if in an argument, in a disagreement, in a conversation, the words always and never are always a part of your conversation. You always do this. You always fail me here. You have never ever. These are scorekeeping words. This is the language of the scorekeeper. If you're the scorekeeper in your relationships, whatever they are, you are the one ultimately losing. If you feel the need to constantly remind your spouse or your kids or your parents or your friends about their failures, their mistakes, you're keeping score. If you want to make sure that your friends, your family, your spouse, your children, if you want to make sure that they know, I remember everything you did. I remember what happened 28 years ago. I remember. If it's your duty to make sure they know you remember, you are keeping score and you are losing. If you are the one in the relationship to bring up all the stuff from the past and focused on all the stuff from the past, you are voluntarily sabotaging your future. You are willfully 
and voluntarily making a mess of tomorrow by constantly pointing out the mistakes of yesterday. Love does not keep score. Ultimately, what Paul is talking about is a really, really hard word. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Some great conversation going on on YouTube right now about why forgiveness is so difficult. Not long after Paul wrote that letter to his friends in Corinth, he wrote another letter to his friends in a place called Colossae, and here's what he said there. He said, these are instructions for Jesus followers only. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. I would like to read that one more time for my own sake. And forgive anyone who offends you. And he could have stopped there, and I really wish he would have, because he just, what he's about to say next, I just find Paul to be very mean and not very sensitive to my feelers at all. Paul says, remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Remember, the Lord forgave you. Jason, so you must forgive others. He's mean, isn't he? He's a mean-spirited dude. And then he wraps it up by saying, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which is what binds us together in perfect unity or perfect harmony. Can you imagine if just that verse, that verse right there, Colossians 3, 13, if we just got that right today, like if we started, forget yesterday, if we started today getting that right, if we went out of this place, went to our homes, went to the places where we eat and where we work and where we live, if, if we just got that verse right starting today, your relationships would be better starting today. Your joy would increase starting today. Your peace of mind and heart would increase starting today. If we could just get this Right. And I love that Paul makes the connection between love and forgiveness because you cannot separate the two. You cannot separate love from forgiveness. To love requires forgiveness. To forgive requires love. You, you have to have them both. And you cannot call yourself a loving person if you will not forgive someone who offends you. Because love and forgiveness go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Jesus spent a lot of time, a lot of time in the Gospels talking about forgiveness. And about the time that his disciples thought they were getting it right, they kind of got the big head, and they thought they were doing really good, especially Peter. Here's what Peter says to Jesus one day. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, got this figured out. I've been listening to you talk about forgiveness, and here's what I've discovered. How often should I forgive someone who sins against me? 
I'm willing to do it. Seven times. Boom. Seven times, Jesus. I got it. Seven times. (laughs) And Jesus is not having this. No. No. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Our our worship leader is about to come up because I'm about done, believe it or not. Jesus is not giving them a number. Jesus is not saying, math teacher, to forgive how many times? 490. Math people, y'all are awesome. Jesus is not saying, no, not seven times, but go ahead and count up to 490, and then when you get to 491, that's when you stop forgiving. That is not the language that Jesus is giving them. He's basically saying, there is no limit. You do not stop. If you are offended once, you forgive once. If you are offended 75,000 times, you forgive 75,000 times, not for their benefit, but for yours. And then, it's obvious, it's obvious to Jesus that Peter doesn't get it, and neither do the other guys who are there listening. And so he tells this crazy story. We're going to read the story, and I'm going I'm to be done. Jesus tells them a parable, and I want you to hear what Jesus says. He says, therefore, since you're going to forgive every time you're offended, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom Jesus came to establish, can be compared to a king. A king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with all the servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. You got the scene? You have a king, he's settling accounts. Hey, you servant number one, you owe me millions of dollars. It's time for you to pay me back. The servant replied, he couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Okay, you can't pay me back? I'm going to sell you in the market. I'm going to sell your wife. I'm going to sell your kids. I'm going to sell your grandkids. Everything you have, I'm selling it so I can get my money back. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt of millions of dollars. The man said, there's no way I could pay you. Please have pity on me. And the king said, okay, I'm not gonna hold this against you anymore. I forgive you. You you no longer owe me millions of dollars. But when the man left the king, He immediately went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. He just left a king who forgave him millions of dollars of debt, walked out of the room, found somebody who owed him a couple thousand, and holds him by the throat, demanding his money back. His fellow servant 
fell down before him and begged for a little more time using the exact same words he just used with the king. Please be patient with me and I will pay it, he replied, but his creditor would not wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until, he could, until the debt could be paid in full. Some of the other servants were watching and they saw this and they were very upset. So they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man that he had forgiven millions of dollars of debt and said to this man, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And here's how Jesus closes this little story. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters and spouses and children and church family if you refuse to forgive them from your heart. Someone you love today needs you to stop bringing up their mistakes. Someone you love today needs you to stop reminding them of all their failures. Someone you love today needs you to forgive them and move on. Someone you love needs you to stop keeping score. When you keep score, you lose and you forfeit your future because love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep score. Love does not weaponize the past. Love forgives and moves on. Let us be loving people. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads for just a second? I don't know where this hits you. I don't know how this applies to your life. But if you are a human being who knows other human beings, you have a great need to be a forgiving person. And the crazy thing about forgiveness is that you think you're setting somebody else free, but who, the, the one that ends up getting set free is you. Forgiveness is always a hard message to teach. It's always a hard message to receive. But if you have been forgiven by Jesus, you are commanded to forgive others. And today, perhaps the most important thing any, any of us will do today is leave this building and make a phone call or sit face to face or maybe just pray a prayer for somebody who's not even with us anymore, but you're holding a grudge. The most important thing for all of us today who follow Jesus to be forgiving. And so, Lord, I just first want to confess that I struggle. I struggle with this, God. It's hard. And then I hear you tell this story about a great king who 
forgave the debt of one man who owed you millions. That man turned around and over something petty and small refused to forgive someone else. And it's an easy trap to fall into, Lord. So forgive me when I fall into that trap. When I withhold forgiveness. You keep no record of our wrongs. Those of us who have received salvation and who are banking on your forgiveness, you have promised to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You, you refuse to bring up the past and beat us over the head with us because you have set us free from it. Teach us as your followers to let go, to move on, to forgive, and to love like you love. In Jesus' name.